scripture lesson this morning I'll share is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, reading through verse 31 from the Common English Bible. Christ is just like the human body. A body is a unit and has many parts. And all the parts of the body are one body, even though there are many. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek, or slave or free, and we all were given one spirit to drink. Certainly, the body isn't one part but many. If the foot says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not a hand, does that mean it's not part of the body? If the ear says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not an eye, does that mean it's not part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, what would happen to the hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, what would happen to the sense of smell? But as it is, God has placed each one of the parts in the body just like God wanted. If all were one and the same body part, what would happen to the body? But as it is, there are many parts but one body. So the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Or in turn, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. Instead, the parts of the body that people think are the weakest are the most necessary. The parts of the body that we think are less honorable are the ones we honor the most. The private parts of our body that aren't presentable are the ones that are given the most dignity. The parts of our body that are presentable don't need this. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the part with less honor, so that there won't be division in the body, and so the parts might have mutual concern for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If one part gets the glory, all the parts celebrate with it. You are the body of Christ and parts of each other. In the church, God has appointed first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, the ability to help others, leadership skills, and different kinds of tongues. All aren't apostles, are they? All aren't prophets, are they? All aren't teachers, are they? All don't perform miracles, do they? All don't have gifts of healing, do they? All don't speak in different tongues, do they? All don't interpret, do they? So use your ambition to try to get the greater gifts, and I'm going to show you an even better way. Here ends this reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. The world we live in has become more integrated and yet more compressed all at the same time than ever before. Though our population globally as human beings continues to swell in number, the speed with which information is shared and news changes hands has made it feel smaller and caused us as a world to be more connected, at least on an informational level. It is my belief that we have not shifted the ways that we see our own roles in the world as people of faith to adjust for this sort of change. 
and that many Christians in particular stand in need of a wake-up call. As pastor, one of the things I try to do is to provide a moral and ethical framework for those in my congregations through my preaching and teaching. So I guess what I'm trying to tell you in today's sermon is, I suppose you can be anything you want, but if you want to insist on having an America first, America is the greatest nation on earth kind of attitude, you could do that, but it'll be in spite of the teachings of the Christian faith and not because of it. Don't hear me wrong. There is nothing inherently wrong with being proud of one's own nation. That is, until the pride in one's own nation keeps a Christian from loving one's foreign neighbor equally to themselves. We have to remember that God did not create the boundaries or borders between nations. Human beings did that all on our own. Now, in his first letter to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul offers a brilliant and compelling metaphor likening the church to the human body. We just read it. The Bible tells us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. One can only marvel at the biological and physiological miracle that constitutes the human body. And if the church is meant to function according to the design of the human body, then each part of the body, or each member in the case of the church, becomes indispensable and interdependent. Verses 25 and 26 say it best. Its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King captured the essence of this text, I believe, when he said, injustice anywhere represents a threat to justice everywhere. Now, when Paul wrote the scripture we read here, 1 Corinthians 12, he probably had no idea how fast news would travel around the globe and how, and how much things could possibly uh, change as people could know, not just about news as it happens in their own neighborhoods, but at the click of a button and an a, a app on a phone, people can be uh, transmitted news and information across the world within a matter of seconds. And in every corner of the globe, something can be known spontaneously almost. Today the church is exploding and growing rapidly, but not here. You see, the fastest growing churches are not in North America or Europe at this time in history, but in Africa, in the Caribbean, in Southeast Asia. Today, some 70% of people who call themselves Christians live outside North America and Europe. Now wrap your mind around that. In 1900, only 10% of those calling themselves Christians lived outside of North America and Europe. And so a lack of understanding in our whole perspective of the world and of our faith has caused many Christians here in this part of the world to experience a deep disconnect from what worldwide citizenship, and for that matter, worldwide citizenship within the faith of Christianity is truly like. Trillions of dollars are transferred each and every day through financial markets, while goods and services are traded across national and international borders. Social media has made communicating across the globe as easy as setting up an email account or a Facebook account. 
The internet age has generated new tools, methods, and opportunities for organizing almost every aspect of our lives. And in this rapidly changing and collapsing world, we must act and think both locally and nationally, but globally as well. And our moral obligations extend beyond simply our local community or our locale. In a global body, our civic and consumer decisions have far-reaching implications for people all across the world. Our world increasingly resembles an international neighborhood through the power of trade and commerce and technology. And yet as the world shrinks, our sense of citizenship has remained far too static, as I've said. And this kind of brand of narrow nationalism describes a condition in which often misplaced patriotism blinds us to our shared humanity and allegiance to our own country if we're not careful can trump the recognition that God shows equal concern for the entire world. Now some days I feel especially proud and blessed to be an American, some days, and yet I also know that from a spiritual perspective my first allegiance is to God and God's worldwide community, the beloved community, the kingdom of God, which knows no nationalities, no boundaries, and no borders. And one of the great dangers of this narrow nationalism from a U.S. perspective is that if we're not careful, we can conflate America's purposes with being the same as God's purposes. But my friend, America is not God, and God is most assuredly not an American. And a belief that God favors American leadership can devolve into idolatry and illness and toxic pride. And while our nation has been tremendously blessed with material riches, these blessings can't come at the expense of the rest of the world, not looking at it in terms of our faith. As Dr. Richard Land, president of the Southern Baptist Convention Commission on Ethics and Religious Liberty writes, Listen closely, you may never hear me quote another Southern Baptist. Our ultimate allegiance belongs to God, but God is not an American. Many Americans worship God, but God is not an American, and America's purposes are not necessarily God's purposes. We must never presume that America's policies serve God's purposes. The besetting sin of conservatives is to merge God and country as if they are virtually inseparable. Too often, Americans interpret our role in the world through the lens of what we'll call American exceptionalism, which refers to this belief that the United States occupies an exalted role among the nations of the world in terms of its national credo, historical evolution, political and religious institutions, and unique origins. And the roots of this kind of American exceptionalism are often attributed to Alexis de Tocqueville, who proclaimed that the then 50-year-old nation held a special place among the nations because it was a country of immigrants and the first modern democracy. Now, at worst, Exceptionalism feeds a belief that we can do no harm and that the rest of the world hates us only because they really, deep down, envy our freedom and our riches. Now this defensive and reactionary posture, it may assuage our consciences, but ultimately erode our moral standing and integrity. 
A large share of the world's distrust and enmity towards the United States is not the result of an irrational or extremist ideology, but a feeling of having been exploited and mistreated by the United States of America. At the very heart of the fight against the real threat of terrorism is a struggle to win the hearts and minds of people around the world, particularly of other faiths. And if you want to get really specific, of those who practice the Muslim faith. And when the United States shows a selective commitment towards advancing human rights and places its commercial interests and capitalistic interests above our moral interests, we give greater ammunition to extremists to exploit these kinds of conditions and contradictions. As people who follow the way of Jesus, as Christians, I believe it is high time that we articulate, again, a new set of values to define our roles in the world, both as individual Christians and then as a church family and our connections denominationally, but also at a bigger picture, those who seek citizenship worldwide within what we call the beloved community, this vision of a world where all are cherished and celebrated equally. And as American citizens, we seek a way, a faithful way as Christians, to contribute to the betterment of this world. Because of our love for Jesus and his teachings and our desire to be faithful in living them out, we have to learn to say to others in our own nation, domination is not the way of Jesus. Domination is fundamentally different than moral leadership. What most Americans call patriotism is often domination. What Jesus would call moral leadership, you know, seeking to serve, is the opposite of domination and victory at any cost. Global responsibility, then, is tied to the biblical mandate. Remember these words? To whom much is given, much will be expected. See Jesus in Luke 12, 48. In other words, God wants us to use what blessings we have to bless others. The blessings we've been blessed with have not come to us to end with us, but to be channeled through us and passed on to the world, rejecting self-centered narcissism in, in serving ourselves and hedonism, just doing whatever feels good. We have to embrace responsibility and refuse to blame others in order to exonerate ourselves from responsibility. So this concept of global responsibility presumes that a nation will take responsibility for its role in perpetuating problems like human rights violations and things that affect everyone, like our environment, climate change, and that we would act responsibly as a nation as these things occur, as well as individual Christian people. Now, even among Christians engaging in conversations about global responsibility, it often devolves into arguments. Call it the blame game. You know, those who fundamentally believe in their heart of hearts in the pure goodness of America and feel a sense of pride about our positive role in the world often fall into a defensive posture when they're confronted with many of the unjust policies and the darker deeds of the United States of America such as, to name a few, how we propped up oppressive military governments during the Cold War, to deposing the democratically elected government in Iran, 
to lending a blind eye to the genocide at Rwanda, to grossly unjust agricultural subsidies that hurt poor farmers both here in the U.S. and around the world, and even lately watching waves of states pass recent laws which would force girls and women to carry the babies of their rapists to full term and grant their rapists visitation rights. On the other hand, those citizens who have felt victimized by America's contradictions and who tend to see, you know, conspiracy behind every bush, you know, we, we've maybe felt more afflicted by harm than good. They fall into a dangerous trap sometimes of ignoring the incredible contributions and noble deeds of America. From act, enacting the Marshall Plan to eradicate polio, to responding to the devastating earthquakes across the world in Haiti, to providing AIDS treatments to millions of, of Africans through our national and international efforts, there are good things about America. There are terrible things about America. The truth usually lies somewhere in between. Perhaps all Americans really lie somewhere in between these two extremes. By and large, every one of us can see the potential for our nation to be a beacon of light and hope once again, and, and justice for that matter, in the world. The challenge, it seems, is for those of us who call ourselves Christians to lead the way out of the cycles of blame into some real conversations and into a commitment of mutual responsibility because of our faith, not in spite of it. We shouldn't deny the wrongs or grievances that our nation at times carries out in the name of de democracy or capitalism. And yet we don't need to suffer from selective amnesia and pretend we're perfect all of the time when we know we're not. And followers of Jesus, remember, the truth shall set us free. So it's okay to be truthful about these things. Many well-meaning Christians place an overemphasis also during these kinds of conversations on individual responsibility. Well, we're all a nation of individuals. Therefore, what can one individual do about this but be individually responsible as it relates to any of these numbers of issues? But friends, just as Paul uses the metaphor of the body to illustrate how we have a responsibility in the church to one another, one of Jesus' most pointed and yet misunderstood teachings about global responsibility is found in Matthew 25. It may have escaped you. You know some of these words. Do you remember these words? He said, whatever you did for one of the least of these siblings of mine, you did for me. And whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. You remember those words? But do you realize he's not speaking those words to individuals? If you look at the very opening of that whole story, the king in this story is speaking to the nations. All of the nations, the author says in Matthew 25, will be gathered before the king. That's right. Jesus taught in Matthew 25 that how nations treat the poor. How nations treat the sick, the imprisoned, the hungry, the naked, the stranger. How nations respond to human rights violations. Nations will be judged. And the people of God are responsible for the actions of their nations on God's behalf. Now that's heavy stuff. 
This teaching of Jesus in Matthew 25 was not about individual acts of kindness or mercy or compassion. It's about global, moral leadership that Christians are to share with the world. Isolationism is not an option, my friends. Not for our nation and not for us as people of faith. We are called to involve ourselves in the process or else pretend we aren't alive. So sinking back into the comfort and security of our own existences is really only an option for those willing to ignore the call of God to love our neighbors as ourselves. Who is that neighbor anyway? Well, sure, it's the person next door, right? But it's the person also in Flint, Michigan, who still doesn't have safe water to drink. And it's the Mexican mother seeking to create a better life for her son or daughter who risks her life and limb to smuggle them across the U.S.-Mexico border. And our neighbor is the citizen in Yemen who is starving to death today because their own government will not allow food to be transported into their city. And why? Political gamesmanship. And our neighbor is the elderly woman in Iran, this morning, rocking in her rocking chair, looking out the window of her home, wondering if the U.S. were to destroy her village in the possible war we're facing at this very moment. And we can disconnect from these neighbors. We can pretend we bear no responsibility, I suppose. And, and I suppose God will still love us. But I do not believe we can disconnect from these neighbors or from any other neighbor and be faithful to the teachings of Jesus. For followers of Jesus, the best measurement of a nation's success is not how well the markets are doing in our own country, but how well humanity is doing across the face of the earth, the whole earth, not just the parts we know about. Not just those humans who live near us and look like us, but every human being and without a proper perspective, without a proper sense of responsibility, where we see ourselves as our worldwide, international, next door as well, neighbor's keeper, we become narrow in our view of faith and love and hope. And when we do it globally, we become narrow, closed-minded nationalists. But I believe God intends for us to be global leaders in this revolution of love. Leaders who live, leaders who love, and who operate as if there are no boundaries because God didn't make them anyway. So, may God bless America, but more importantly, may God bless the whole wide world. No exceptions. Amen.